does this happen if you're not exposed to the tech sector and you don't have a chief risk officer and you're not going through a global pandemic with all-time low interest rates and then having an inflation shock? So there's a lot that happened there that you need to unpack to understand why Silicon Valley Bank is such an outlier. Money makes a Welcome to The Laundry, where we usually discuss the ins and outs of AML and the compliance world. In this episode, however, we will take a closer look at the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, one of the biggest banking failures of the decade. We'll examine how the bank's risk management may have been the leading cause of its downfall and get an exclusive perspective from Marcus Moloskov, Chief Risk and Compliance Officer at Januar, and Simon Taylor, Head of Strategy at Sardine.ai. Stay tuned as we untangle the complexities of this case and find out what lessons can be learned. So, Marcus, can you please take our listeners to what has happened since Thursday last week? Yeah, I, a lot of things has happened. So, uh, first of all, I, I was thinking that maybe we should start with talking a little bit about the size and, and of uh, Silicon Valley Bank, SVB, and what impact it actually had that Silicon Valley Bank uh closed down um so first of all silicon valley bank was the 18th largest bank in the us with 200 billion us dollars in assets similar amount of liabilities of which about 175 billion us dollars were deposits from uh, primarily uh, vc funds and and uh, their portfolio companies and because they have so such few but very large customers, about 97% of their customers uh, had account values over the 250,000 US dollars FDIC limit uh, for, for the insurance coverage of uh, bank deposits. Um, so, so this just shows that, you know, it's, a, it, it's a huge thing. It, it's the second largest uh, bank default since Lehman or ever uh, in, in US history. Um, so, so if we want to go through the timeline of what happened since Thursday, then it all starts with the Silvergate bank, a primarily uh, crypto friendly bank that halted operations after a long period uh, of, uh, of, uh, kind of going downhill since FTX collapsed. What is the more detailed timeline of this collapse? Simon, do you have any insights here? The more detailed version uh, is that essentially what we saw through Wednesday and Thursday is panic broke out. And we saw the share price of Silicon Valley Bank begin to really materially correct through Thursday of last week. Um, and it dropped more than 60% in a single day. And a lot of that came on the back of really a drumbeat that had been happening for weeks prior on the question on the uh, on a small footnote from an annual report that said that some of the assets held on this balance sheet were held to maturity assets and that they could be a duration mismatch uh, between the deposits they hold and the available to sell value of these these assets this really happened on Thursday when uh, a small footnote in the last quarterly report of Silicon Valley Bank about the assets that they held against their deposits uh, had exploded onto the scene after they sold more than $2 billion 
worth of securities at a loss. And everybody started immediately questioning, why would they sell these assets at a loss? Um, and the share price immediately tanked uh, more than 60% in a single day on Thursday, uh, as people realized that this problem of uh, making a $2 billion loss was potentially much, much larger than that. And unfortunately, given the nature of instant communications, 24-7 online, Twitter, panic took place uh, about the questions of solvency for this bank. And interestingly, this wasn't a lack of deposits or the fact that they didn't have uh, any, any assets of high quality. It was that the mark-to-market value of those assets were in question. But that didn't matter to the world of Twitter, and that definitely didn't matter to depositors who immediately started a bank run. And once a bank run starts, what really is an issue on uh, duration mismatch and asset and liability management became a solvency issue, possibly for the first time uh, that I can remember and, and that we've ever witnessed. And we can unpack why that is. Uh, I think it's a particularly interesting quirk about Silicon Valley Bank and a particularly interesting quirk about the pandemic and interest rates, which is really worth looking at. Um, but that's sort of the, the the high level timeline. And I think there's there's a lot more underneath it that, that's worth exploring. Is there anything you think, uh, Marcus, that should be mentioned uh, with what Simon said? Anything to like add to the major major things there? No, I I think maybe the the kind of timing where you know we've had the Silvergate Bank who had the, who had been going downhill since the FTX collapse, uh, and then they actually announced Thursday that they were. Uh, stopping operations. Um, so, so everything that uh, SVB did were in the context of that, even though the two banks didn't really have uh, any contagion. Uh, it, you know, the, the consumer sentiment or the customer sentiment were that there, this was somehow related and we now saw a, a, a similar risk in SVB, which then prompted the VCs to instruct all their portfolio companies to pull out funds. And I think that VC instruction was a key thing because of the fear of contagion. But actually, to, you make a great point, Marcus. These were fundamentally different reasons for why they went down. But the part of the issue with Silicon Valley Bank, of course, is you have to consider what that bank is. Not only is it big, it's not a systemically important bank as we would traditionally define it, but for the tech sector, it is systemically important. This is the place that Stripe Atlas opens bank accounts. This is where most VCs hold their money. This is where most startups have their VC cash held, and it's where they make payroll from. And most things in fintech that are doing some kind of uh, clearing of ACH and uh, other types of payments may run through something like a Silicon Valley bank so systemically for the tech industry, this was really, really meaningful. And that sort of potentially uh, made the made the situ situation quite a bit worse in, in their eyes. But I do think that uh, VC Twitter has a lot to answer for here in, in sort of sparking some of this contagion risk, sort of worry and panic, because, you know, they were sort of seeing this and not really understanding what they were looking at and that it was quite, quite different to a global financial crisis. It was quite different to what had happened with Signature and Silvergate, uh, sorry, with Silvergate at the time uh, and now with Signature. 
These are different things. So you wrote on LinkedIn that Silicon Valley Bank was an outlier, and this is what you mean by that as well in, in this context. Yes. Um, so if you look at uh, what happened during the pandemic, we had all-time low interest rates. And what happens in all-time low interest rates is the tech boom really, really hits a whole other level. VCs raise the highest levels of cash they've ever seen. So VCs have more cash to deposit. Tech companies raise more cash than ever before. So they have higher deposits. And of course, Silicon Valley Bank is the one collecting the vast majority of these deposits. Silicon Valley Bank also is very concentrated in this sector. It does very little lending to consumers. It did very little other than serve the tech community. So Silicon Valley Bank had a lot of deposits from high tech companies that had benefited from pandemic uh, funding rounds that were higher than ever before. VCs had raised higher funding than ever before. And a lot of that cash found its way into Silicon Valley Bank. But unlike a lot of other banks, Silicon Valley Bank doesn't lend really to retail. So it needed to find high quality liquid assets it could buy that would generate it some sort of yield instead of being able to lend to consumers like a traditional bank would to generate its yield. Uh, it, it does that. And high quality liquid assets generally qualify and make you look like you know your tier one capital is, is absolutely fine. The problem was they were really, really lopsided in the fact that they did no lending and they were doing this with long-term low interest rates. And then their chief risk officer quit. And so they hadn't had a chief risk officer for about eight months and they hadn't rebalanced uh, their uh, high-quality liquid assets as interest rates started to rise. And now interest, rate rights, uh, interest rates were getting so high, they had to pay more to their depositors, but they weren't receiving more from the uh, high-quality liquid assets they purchased in the market. And then they had what's called a duration mismatch. So they were buying securities that were giving a 1.5% yield over five and 10 years, which in you know 2021 numbers is, is a pretty good yield. Like you take that in 2023 with interest rates at sort of closer to uh, four, four and a half, five percent depositors are expecting a lot, lot more than what Silicon Valley Bank could offer. So they had deposit flights going in search of yield. So their, their deposit book was dwindling. Their high quality liquid assets weren't delivering them enough yield and they were starting to lose money very, very quickly. And so does this happen if you're not exposed to the tech sector and you don't have a chief risk officer and you're not going through a global pandemic with all time low interest rates and then having an inflation shock. So there's a lot that happened there that you need to unpack to understand why Silicon Valley Bank is such an outlier. But there is still, I think, fear of, well, are there other banks that are exposed similarly to similar things, maybe not quite as extreme? Marcus, you work as a chief risk officer. How do you fathom going eight months in a large bank without having a chief risk officer in place? <laughs> um... I, I think it's very difficult to do. And, and and not only didn't they not rebalance their portfolio, but I saw a post stating that in the uh, 2021 annual report, you could see that they have 20 billion worth of interest rate swaps, which is a hedge of this 
uh, duration mismatch that Simon is talking about. And at the end of 2022, they didn't have any. So apparently they have also had some hedges that has, had expired and not repurchased them. You know, so <laughs> so that is a clear, uh, I, I see that as a runoff of, of not having a, a CRO, uh, if, if not some kind of deliberate uh, thing. I mean, we, we saw that in the post uh, uh, financial crisis as well with Lehman Brothers and all of the other banks that collapsed back then. You know, one of the one of the recurring themes of those banks were that they had either uh, deliberately or by just mismanagement, uh, um, you know, restrained or defunded the the risk departments of the bank. Do you have any perspective on this, uh, Simon? Like going eight uh, months without a chief risk officer, how how do you see that? It's hard to hire C suite. Um, you would expect that the chief risk officer is not the only person managing risk in an organization. There is an entire department called uh, Asset and Liability Management, or ALM, um, that could have risk adjusted throughout the duration here. Uh, if you have not done so uh, according to you know not having a CRO, I think that's a, a pretty poor excuse. Uh, really, staying risk adjusted is something that Everybody in C-suite is should be uh, continually concerned about and continually liable for. The primary function of a bank is to manage um, <laughs> maturity transformation. I mean, this is this is the business you're in, after all. Uh, it's not something a department does. Uh, it's the core function of a bank. So I, I think there's a lot that could have been done in hindsight, but the reality, of course, is day-to-day -day gets in the way and. Um, Perhaps things get blocked and perhaps there were fires elsewhere. And also uh, perhaps the, the people just didn't realize, you know, some the Titanic hit an iceberg, but then things felt fine for a while. Um, and sometimes the thing that looks like a ripple, you know, there was a black swan series of events that has caused this as well. Um, not just bad risk management, so you might not, if unless that is your obsessive focus, be aware of that. And it's entirely possible they may not have been aware of how much of a black swan they were uh, and what risk that carried as a direct result. Um, so everything's easy in hindsight. Yeah. For sure. And I agree with Simon that a CRO, you know, it's, it's not a one-man thing. There, there usually is a risk department uh, that, that should be able to cover for such a position. And Silvergate and Signature, who have also defaulted, you know, they had a CRO uh, for the past year. So, so it's not uh, that alone that does it. Um, but, but then again, if you are in a bank where uh, where the culture is that that risk is a cost function, and we don't really want to listen to them, they're more blocking business than doing anything else. Then the lack of a CRO in the C-suite will make it even easier to tune out and, and ignore uh, any warnings that, that might come from the risk department. How do you guys believe uh, other banks will address, uh, risk, address risk management in the wake of the Silicon Valley bank collapse? Will there be any new, new things on the horizon? 
I think every bank in the world is now looking at for duration mismatch as by direct order of the CEO. Um, so, you know, sometimes watching the other guy fall over is useful to make sure you don't do the same. It's a cautionary tale. Um, so that, that will be, uh, I suspect, a big focus. Um, Marcus, what are your thoughts? Yeah, and I, I think uh, I think also that, uh, I mean, it, in, in Basel, and and the following legislation, you know, it's customary to do stress tests of uh, large uh, deposit outflows and and that kind of stuff. But from what I understand is that uh, SVB uh, possibly deliberately uh, positioned themselves just below the cap of having to comply with those regulations in the US, where for EU, uh, banks at a much lower level need to comply with those regulations and stress tests. So I think the primary difference, new thing might be that smaller banks in the US uh, or banks the same size as SVB might begin to do these stress tests uh, voluntarily, even though they're not uh, mandated to. Yeah, I, I think that would be a sensible step for any CRO. I'm, I'm guessing many have already instantiated such a thing. Uh, but again, um, even under Basel III, high quality liquid assets are as good as cash. So, you know, th- that might not have solved it and it might not have shown up in your stress test, depending on how you how you design it. Yeah, and, and, and that's, but it depends. I mean, when you buy bonds, you can put them into two different portfolios. You can do the available for sale where you mark to market them, or you can have them in a whole to maturity portfolio. And then you don't need to book the losses on your balance sheet and, and your annual report. But I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm not. I, I have worked in bank, but not specifically with capital calculations. So I'm not sure whether you need to actually stress test the whole to maturity portfolio as well as the available for sale portfolio, or if you only need to stress test the available for sale portfolio. But I think. One of the runoffs from this uh, would definitely be if I were a risk manager in a bank, I would, if I wasn't already doing it, I would voluntarily start to stress test the whole for, to maturity portfolio as well. Exactly. <laughs> Do you think this uh, the similar collapse can happen to a uh, European bank or a Nordic or a UK one as uh, the geographies that we are located in right now? I mean, theoretically, yeah. Yes, um, as, we, as, as I mentioned, we have these whole to maturity portfolios that where the banks don't need to book them on the on the annual report uh, any losses that might have might be in that portfolio because of the rising interest rates and as interest rates continue to rise if they do so these losses will just develop and become bigger and bigger so you will have these hidden losses at almost every bank and depending how they hedge that risk and how to manage that risk, we could have some banks that are technically insolvent or technically below the capital requirement if they were to, you know, uh, pay out a lot of deposits and, and, and need to go in and liquidate some of that portfolio. Uh, so you could potentially also see banks trying to move some bonds that might, for some reason, have a, a, a lower loss. So you so if the whole to maturity portfolio contains both short duration assets and long duration assets, I'll probably start moving short duration assets into the available for sale uh, portfolio such that I would have 
more assets that I could sell off and, and, and pay out to depositors if needed without having to disclose this whole big loss that I had in, uh, in the whole to maturity portfolio. And I think that was the worry is that uh, if you looked at the whole to maturity portfolio that um, Silicon Valley Bank did not have to disclose, um, then the calculations were that on a mark to market basis, they were underwater by 30 billion, not just the the sort of uh, 400 million or so loss that they yeah. booked when, when, they, when, they, uh, when, when they made the sale. And, and I think that's fundamentally the, the challenge here. What I would go back to though, Silicon Valley Bank is an outlier. A, the US is a very different banking market to most of Europe. Um, mm. It is way less concentrated. Most Nordic markets, most European markets tend to have a handful of banks that are very, very large and then a longer tail of smaller ones. Um, and they don't have the concentration risk around one sector. Uh, and they tend to be a little bit more diversified in terms of their offerings to retail and, and, and beyond. So there isn't really an animal that I'm aware of that looks exactly like Silicon Valley Bank that also has a banking license that also happens to um, operate across Europe. Maybe something small like an LHV, um, but, you know, TBD on, on something like that. Yeah. But I mean, uh, I, I read somewhere that there are 2.2 trillion USD held in, uh, in whole to maturity uh, uh, portfolios in, in US banks at the end of 2022. So if you say that that on average has lost 10%, uh, you know, we, we could have some banks and, and some banks might have longer duration and, and mixes of, uh, of uh, hedges and that kind of stuff. So we could have other banks that are technically below their capital requirements, but are still alive because, you know, their customers are on the withdrawing funds. Um, but, but we don't know because they don't have to disclose it, but, but that, but, but I think that also shows in the financial markets today where, you know, all banks are going down, <laughs> all bank stocks are going down, uh, like dropping, uh, crazily and, and the rest of the market is generally going up. So I, I think this is a, it's not a financial crisis in the same way as with Lehman where banks were afraid of each other. This is a potential crisis where consumers are afraid of having funds with banks. So we see consumers, um, you know, dropping bank stocks, putting, but not have, but not selling them to hold funds at their bank or at their trading menu. They would rather have that in other stocks or in crypto assets or in bonds or whatever. It seems like all assets are going up and, but bank stocks are going down. I mean, my hypothesis, I can't confirm this, but my hypothesis is that, that professional investors are trying to reduce their balances at, at different banks by buying assets. Yeah, they're going risk off of the banking sector. Um, and you can see that in the price of banking equities. The question, the problem is we just don't know. And there is nothing uh, enforcing banks to declare the potential mark-to-market value of their held to maturity portfolio. Uh, and that might be an interesting regulatory outcome to start to look at, um, is that at least they are carrying something for that, or that that's in the calculation somewhere. Um, they don't necessarily have to be held to that in their capital ratios, but they should be meaningfully managing it or at least aware of it. I suspect we'll see something along those lines start to emerge. Uh, and then again, the longer there is uncertainty, 
the longer people will panic. Um, yeah. Certainty is everything. The FDIC stepping in in the US and guaranteeing deposits helps those businesses and fixes the short term confidence problem in you know, Silicon Valley Bank and the tech sector's ability to function and operate, but it doesn't necessarily fix the broader underlying thing that the professional investors are really concerned about, which is where else could this be? We just don't know because nobody has to declare it. Yeah. I actually saw that the Fed were considering creating some kind of, of, of a lending mechanism where you could uh, do a, a one-year uh, repo. So, so normally there are financial markets called repos where, where you can kind of lend out your collateral or lend out your assets in, in these uh, bond portfolios that you have, and then you would get cash back. And that is a very liquid market and you can use it to quickly uh, get cash for your depositors and manage your liquidity and that kind of stuff. But for these going, if, if you see a large outflow of deposits, it's not enough to do that for one day. And you would potentially have to sell these uh, hold to maturity assets in order to, to, um, to handle these uh, deposit outflows. So what the Fed is now proposing is that you can lend those bonds in not just one day, but lend it for a year to Fed, and they will lend you the, uh, I assume the 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 notional of the bond and not the market value of the bond, because otherwise it wouldn't help. Uh, and and that is a way for banks to kind of yeah not being forced to sell these hold to maturity bonds. Um, in a way that, that they can manage liquidity and, and pay out depositors if, if needed without having to realize these uh, these losses. So we have to wrap up soon because time is running out. So, you know, this is a podcast about AML and compliance. And, you know, a lot of people uh, kind of reduce a bank or a financial institution to the uh, financial risk engine and then the non-financial risk engine with compliance, KYC, AML and so forth. Um, Will this, is there any link between the, um, what has just happened and a bank's um, focus and importance on KYC and customer due diligence in particular, so they have a better overview of the, the customer and the risk they're exposed to? I, I do think the interesting thing would be uh, concentration risk is probably something as particularly sector concentration risk. Like if you have a particular segment and you are concentrated on them, how is that going to be uh, impacting your business? And one of the ways you might start to see that manifest is through, well, know your customer. You should know who they are. You should know what sector they exist within. Um, and of course, there are known high-risk sectors like money service businesses and and everything that can becomes implicated with that. But And crypto, that uh, Silicon Valley Bank was was really, really key to. So I suspect that's probably the, the area of uh, overlap. I don't know if it would be specifically through AML or, or its sort of um, kind of regulations, KYC and AML, but it may be implicated uh, through, through, uh, through that lens. And then I would say if, if people have some understanding of a, a financial report from a bank, which is a completely different animal from a normal financial report, uh, do due diligence on your financial partners. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
you have to understand what return on uh, tangible equity is and what uh, what RWAs really mean. Uh, risk weighted assets is a complicated calculation um, that came out of the global financial crisis. Uh, and uh, if you understand that stuff, then that could be a piece of what you're starting to have to diligence, especially if you're operating in payments in any way, shape or form, and you are looking for banking partners in that process. You want to know that that partner is going to be there in 12 months time if you start using them. You don't want to be in the blind panic that a lot of businesses have been uh, over the last weekend trying to figure out how they're going to make payroll or if their product's going to work tomorrow because a bank that they assumed was okay uh, wasn't when they onboarded them as a partner. Yeah, that is um, that is a good uh, a good point. Just a final question. You know, banks are under a lot of regulations already, and we spoke a little bit about this threshold. And um, I saw Biden was out in the newspaper calling for even stricter regulations. And I saw in the U.S. I think a a bank is on average, uh, subject to 50,000 different regulations. So do you think there will be more after this? Regulation is the thing that happens after something must be done. And uh, this is a very big something must be done kind of political moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, If the president comes out and says something must be done, then something will be done. Uh, It's a question of what, not if. um, And and it's when, not if. Uh, My suspicion is... Uh, this would be a phenomenal opportunity to use reg tech and supervisory tech to actually go find this stuff. A lot of the market data is actually available. Like the, we know which legal entity owns which health maturity assets uh, in the right places. Those things all exist in reports. It's pulling it together. So if you took two or three analysts um, from you know that work in in, in investment banking somewhere and then put them with a couple of engineers, you could build something that automates a lot of this risk management pretty quickly, just off the publicly available data that you've already done. Don't build a new internal system, just go do something that gives you that. I imagine somebody's already done the Excel macro version of it, some smart analyst, um, but there's a there's a FinTech product or a RegTech product to be built there for sure uh, that I think would do very, very well. Mm. I also saw the... Uh, chief strategy officer at Circle uh, doing a call to action stating that uh, some of this could somewhat be attributed to the fact that we have state regulation of banks and not federal regulation. So I don't know if if that is even plausible if the states want to give that up. But <laughs> but but simplification of of regulation uh, between states. And get something that that's uh, more federal, similar to what we have seen in in EU, where we kind of work towards aligning EU regulation across European countries. Uh, that is something that we are that we benefit from in, in January at least, and I assume that most American banks would benefit from uh, a federal regulation, uh, especially if they are present in in more than one state. Thank you so much, guys, for coming on the show and doing this episode so late. Uh, Yeah, thank you so much for joining. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.